Hi, everyone. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to investors and donors who are working on new ways to improve lives and create wealth in Africa. Today, I am beyond thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Bijou Mohandas. Bijou has led investments at not just one, but three different household names in impact investing. Leapfrog Investments, the International Finance Corporation, or IFC, and Acumen. For those that aren't in the space, Leapfrog is one of the world's largest impact investing firms. Launched in 2008 by none other than President Bill Clinton himself. Today, it's got over $2 billion in assets under management. The International Finance Corporation, or IFC, is the largest development finance institution in the world with over $3 billion of assets under management. For almost a decade, Biju led the IFC's global work in medical devices, as well as their investments in education and healthcare. In Africa. In the conversation ahead of us, Biju is going to share his take on the upcoming global healthcare crisis, the competitive edge of entrepreneurs in Africa and India, and the catalytic role of impact investors. Let's hear from the man himself, a guy who's been leading impact investments in healthcare in Africa for as long as the term impact investing has even existed. Just before we dive in, if you like what you hear today, please connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Aid Evolved. Please leave us a positive review. It really does help. And last but not least, if you have any questions or comments about any of the topics we discuss on this podcast, send them to podcasts at aidevolved.com. We'll take an upcoming episode to go through our mailbag and hear from you, our listeners. Once again, that's podcast at aidevolved.com. Now, let's get back to our show. We begin by setting the stage. What is going on in healthcare, in emerging markets, and around the world? What new realities and new demands are going to strain our healthcare system in the years ahead? Here's Bijou. If we take a global view, in the context of healthcare, the last two to three decades, around the world, the average life expectancy of us humans has increased. And this is pretty much a secular trend. There are very few countries where it's not true. On an average, the life expectancy now is close to 73 uh, from the 60s in 1990 or so. So significant increase. However, in that same period, the healthy average life expectancy hasn't really gone up drastically. It's improved, but not by much. So it is on an average about 63 or so, which leaves about 7, 10 years on an average of poor health in every human being's life. As the number of people beyond the age of um, 60, so by 2030, that number would have um, tripled, I believe. And by 2050, the number of people above the age of 80 would have tripled. All of that is great. But if as the number of uh, people around the world who are older increases and they, if the trend continues in, in the healthy average life expectancy, not really uh, keeping up with life expectancy, that would mean all these elderly people are going to live a lot of their years on the planet in an unhealthy fashion. 
this is a human issue. This is not good. Obviously, none of us want that to happen. It is also a major financial and social issue for all the countries. India recently became one of the largest, most heavily populated country in the world. At this point, very, very young. But that country is going to be relatively old over a period of time, or, or at least the proportion of the older people will increase the size of the population. So if you have several hundred million people living at least a decade, if not more, unhealthily, that's going to put a huge strain on the, in the system. We saw a little glimpse of that strain during the pandemic, when particularly in the more developed economies, pretty much the healthcare infrastructure came to a standstill because the ICUs and hospitals were filled. And we saw that also in some emerging economies with younger population. So we don't want that to happen. If we don't want that to happen, what do we do? We need to shift healthcare from just treating illness to actually preventing illness and enabling wellness. So I believe this is the moment in time when societies all over the world as a race need to look at this overarching problem and come to that conclusion with the healthcare system, which has been designed over hundreds of years, mostly in the West, needs to take a relook and refresh itself. And that, in some ways, is the hard question that faces us. The good news is we today, for the first time possibly, have all the tools that can help us get there. For instance, again, going back to the India example, there are, last I checked, 600, 700 million people with access to smartphones. The cost of data is among the cheapest in the world, if not the cheapest in the world, at one GB of data being available for nine cents, eight cents, something in that order of magnitude. So if you bring all of those together, something as ubiquitous as a cell phone, the huge amount of data that it captures, we really have an opportunity to look at the specific requirements of an individual and design the healthcare system to cater to that. We have today for the first time an opportunity to shift healthcare from being something which was episodic. When someone falls sick, they go to a doctor to something which is real time. So right now, as we speak, uh, certain devices are capturing my stress levels. It's telling me, okay, good job standing up because you're burning more calories than if you were sitting on your couch and having this call, so on and so forth. It's free. It's not something that I'm paying huge amounts of money for. And this exact service can be provided to the less privileged as well. So the frequency of healthcare can shift from episodic to, to real time. The agency for healthcare can shift from doctors or paramedical staff or nurses who are few and far in between across the world, but definitely in countries like India, Nigeria, Kenya, they're very, very few. So it can shift from them to me and you. It's our health. So we need to be the agents. And then finally, venue of care can shift from hospitals and clinics to our homes, our offices, our communities. So today, the moment in my view is one, this massive challenge, which is secular. It's not a challenge just for Nigeria or for Kenya or for India. It is equally a challenge for the US and the UK. The context is slightly different in terms of what the ecosystem provides us. And the marching order that if you want to solve that challenge is shift healthcare from treating, from just treating the sick to enabling wellness and preventing illness. And the tools are technology and smartly leveraging technology to shift healthcare to being, being an individual, shifting healthcare from an infrequent episodic event to 
something which is real-time, shifting it from what happens at hospitals and clinics run by doctors and nurses to what happens in our homes, in our offices, in our communities, and run by us. And that's the opportunity that we have using everything from this simple, ubiquitous mobile phones to slightly more esoteric technology like genomics and big data analytics and AI and so on. Vijay, that is compelling. Your first point about those last 10 years of life, it's terrifying for me. I feel like I just came face to face with my own mortality in this conversation. So I'm going to have a deep glass of wine after this conversation. You're talking about this global trend, which affects all of us, and we should be thinking about how do you see that playing out in emerging markets? Uh, I think you mentioned a lot of things that are applicable to my life in a middle-income country, but what are some of the trends that you're seeing in Asia, in Africa, that are unique, or some of the approaches that you think are particularly well-suited to emerging markets? What I find most exciting is none of the things that I said in terms of the tools and technology are things which are not present in emerging markets. And another reality which has played out over the last couple of decades is the flattening of the world when it comes to almost instantaneous transfer of innovation. There are some quantum computing, for instance, which requires relative amount of research and great quality universities and investments of the tune of billions of dollars, which might take, at least in terms of the hardware being present in each of these countries, might take longer time. But the softer component, what emerges from all the quantum computing that's going to happen, what emerges from some of the genomic sequencing which has happened over the years, etc., will almost instantaneously spread to emerging markets. So the number one, we are no longer in a paradigm where things happen in the US or Europe and it, it happens in Asia or Africa a decade after or five years after. There is some lag, but it's not as much. If anything, brings me to my second point, African economies, Asian economies, in the context of the healthcare system in particular, I, I suppose probably applicable in other industries as well, have less existing infrastructure and ecosystem built in, which in turn means there are less stakeholders with their own perverse incentives to prevent change. And they have very young population. Youth typically, not always, also means willingness to adapt technology quicker, faster, and a certain neuroelasticity, a lack of entrenched habits, etc., etc. So when you pull all of those things together, A, technology transferring almost instantaneously across all these markets from Western world or between themselves, B, the fact that there isn't exactly large built-in infrastructure and stakeholders with perverse incentives, or, or there is less of that, and then youthful dynamic, highly adaptive, entrepreneurial population, in turn means some, a lot of the things that we talked about or touched upon very the high level earlier, innovations in health, could actually emerge out of these emerging markets. You could probably have large companies providing personalized healthcare, large companies underwriting insurance with smart use of technology, large companies enabling payment for health in very smart fashion happening here before they might even happen in some of the larger middle-income or, or high-income markets. So I, I think if, that would be the single most important theme for me when you ask the question, what do you feel about emerging markets in this context? Yeah, and I, I feel you on that energy. The 
population of sub-Saharan Africa is 70% under the age of 30, which is crazy if you think about that, that energy and that potential and that ability to embrace change in a way that older populations can't. Could you maybe dive a bit deeper on one investee portfolio organization, something that you're really excited about and sort of break apart for us some of the nuance of why you're excited about this venture? What are some of your hopes for where it can go? I could spend the rest of the time we have and maybe more talking about all the the portfolio companies I'm excited about. Pretty much all of them, in my opinion, are at the vanguard of uh, reshaping healthcare in in many different ways. And then I'll probably use that theme. So we spoke earlier about how healthcare needs to shift from merely treating the sick to enabling wellness, preventing illness, which in turn, in essence, means getting healthcare really close to the consumer. We spoke about the frequency, the agency, and so on. So that really means get healthcare really close to the consumer. And in order to do that, there are, we have found two practical approaches and a company could use one or the other or both. So one of them is asset light healthcare. And I'll give you two examples in our portfolio of that, one in Africa, one in India. Asset light healthcare. This is going to be a recurring theme in our conversation today, and a key factor in LeapFrog's investment strategy. For those of you not in the investment space, asset light means you don't own a lot of stuff. Venture capitalists and other investors love asset light for many reasons, which I definitely am not going to do justice on in this interlude. But one example is it just takes less cash to get off the ground. For example, A hospital is asset heavy. You need real estate. You need a building. You need beds. That's going to take a lot of capital. Another example, a mobile health workforce is asset light. No buildings, no beds, just people who go where they're needed and help as they can. Now, obviously, you need both in any functioning healthcare system. But for a few reasons, private investors prefer Asset light. Next, BG shares an example of an asset light healthcare business they've invested in in East Africa. The first one is a company called Good Life. It is a chain of retail pharmacies. I personally got for involved in Good Life during my previous life at IFC when I had the privilege of leading an investment in the company just after it had tragically gotten into a pretty distressed state as a result of a terror attack to one of the malls in in Nairobi, which took out its top store, which in essence meant that overnight it went from being pretty decently run, solid, even if small business, to being distressed. Bijou, of course, is referring to the 2013 shootings at the Westgate Shopping Mall, an event that shook the world. It all happened in an upscale neighborhood in Nairobi. Nairobi one of the commercial epicenters of the continent, often referred to as the Silicon Savannah of Africa. For three days in September, the world was gripped by a hostage situation. And at the heart of that hostage situation was the company that would become Good Life Pharmacy. Chris Katanga, the founder and then CEO of the pharmacy chain, was at Westgate the day the attacks happened. When the terrorists came, four of his staff members were trapped inside during the shootout. 
Thankfully, everyone made it out okay. But in one blow, that attack wiped out the pharmacy's flagship location and a quarter of their business. And yet, despite all of this, IFC knew there was a gap in quality, non-counterfeit access to medicines in East Africa. And they knew Good Life could fill that gap. So they invested. So once that happened, we infused some capital in it. And then subsequently, LeapFrog got involved. And so this entity almost literally rose from its ashes to today become the largest pharma retail player in East Africa, potentially Sub-Saharan Africa, with close to 130 stores across Kenya and Uganda. Amazing. Indeed, indeed. And what's exciting about that, Rowena, is each of these stores cost very little to set up. We are talking about, depending on the format, from ten, fifteen thousand up to twenty, thirty thousand dollars to set up. And every time you set something like that up, you're getting close to the consumer because it's a relatively vast geography. You get close to the consumer, you react faster to the needs of the local community, you shift your service delivery depending on on those needs. And as a result, you break even even faster than it would have taken otherwise. And therefore you'll have more cash to set up even more stores just kicking off that virtuous cycle. So uh, today it offers great quality medication to several million consumers every year. And this is in the context where there is significant amount of counterfeit medication in some of these markets. It is in the context where Good Life is not just now provider of medicines, but also a counselor through some of its wellness programs of a person's health. So that's that's one example where you use very smartly designed asset light healthcare model to get really close to the consumer, build out a profitable business, and at the same time have significant impact at a system level. Another example, this time in a different geography that uses the asset light business model, Albe with is slightly more use of technology, is a company called Redcliffe Diagnostics. This is an investment that we made mid last year. In the time that we've known them, so we've conducted, we conducted diligence on them, say six months before we invested. So over that period, they have grown close to three times their top line, going from just about three laboratories to close to 70 laboratories now, which cater to about 100 odd cities across the country. Most of them tier two, tier three, small towns in what people who are in India refer to as the Bharat, as opposed to India. India being the living in the large metros, upper middle income, middle income populations, whereas Bharat is semi-rural, rural, lower middle income to middle income population. While they are present in metros, bulk of their growth and delivery has happened in these tier two, tier three towns and cities. And again, if you notice, what you see is a story of tremendous growth. And what is driving that growth? It is the asset light business model. It takes very little to set up a lab. It's mostly on a rental basis with the equipment providers. They set up large numbers of collection centers, in their case, about 1,000. Again, goes back to that thesis, get really close to the consumer, understand what they need, and provide them with those services. In this particular case, the very simple but meaningful insight that was at the core of their innovation was that no one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, today I'm going to go to the lab to provide my annual, to get my annual medical checks done. 
there is no value added to you as a consumer or to the lab as a as a provider through that visit to you going there sitting for an hour two hours if anything it forces the lab to set their lab laboratories in large high streets which means high opex with with high rentals and so on and for you it is obviously a waste of time and therefore less chances that you will do it the compliance levels of individuals are low india is one of the least the use of diagnostics per capita among the least in the world when it comes to large populations part of it is affordability the other part is just compliance who who would do it so they shifted it around by saying we will have labs and you're welcome to come in there and deliver your samples we'll also set up these smaller collection centers across the country which will be closer to your homes and then finally we we are happy to come home and take your samples as well so they have a they have phlebotomists trained phlebotomists going home to collect the samples so all of these things meant that they were they solved a need which reduced the inconvenience and reduced the costs because their rentals are much lower they are able to leverage each lab far more than they would be able to if they were just focusing on small geography and they smartly use technology everything ranging from a very solid backend software to allow them to track their logistics to ensure the phlebotomists are arriving on time as well as ensuring sanctity of the samples to using slightly more esoteric techs like drones to fly across valleys and collect uh, samples from uh, small villages and and so on and so forth so it's another fascinating use of the thesis of asset light healthcare to get really close to the consumer so the first model i said is leveraging asset light business models and these are two examples the second is leveraging technology again we spoke about how smartphones are ubiquitous now pretty much everywhere in the world price of a, a handset is plummeting and will plummet it's it's almost inexorable the price of data is also relatively low so there are there is a real opportunity to leverage that as well as similarly plummeting costs of wearables ranging from continuous glucose monitoring devices to watches or various other kinds of straps that you can use to iot devices such as weighing scales with with some data element in there and ability to integrate with your phone so if you look at that ecosystem there's a real opportunity to get close to the consumer not just in space because your mobile phone is usually a, um, rightly or wrongly not more than a hand length away but you can also get close to the consumer in time because again your mobile phone is pretty much with you all the time if you're wearing a smartwatch you're wearing it all the time of, or some other kind of strap you can wear it all the time so these features these the hardware costs are coming down the software is getting smarter the data is is getting cheaper so there are companies that leverage that to enable that shift we were talking about one great example is one of our portfolio companies in india called healthify me this is probably the largest digital wellness app in india with about 35 million registered users i think around 2 million or so monthly average users the company allows its users to plug in and helps them manage their weight as well as certain chronic diseases that might be associated with the higher than average weight and it ranges from just a simple discipline of plugging in your fitness which is free anyone can plug in and just measure their calories in calories out and calibrate themselves without any inputs from the company and that service is free 
if you need input from the company, it goes all the way from an AI enabled diet and fitness coach who sends in, looks at your inputs and provides you with a diet plan and a fitness plan to human coaches who do the same to a combination of both. And then finally, they are they have evolved to pretty holistic product, which includes all of these plus uh, wearables and IoT. They provide you with a continuous glucose monitoring patch twice a year. They provide you with a digital weighing scale, which transmits not just your body weight, but also your BMI, fat content, muscle content, et cetera, to your coach. And finally, also they also run metabolic panel of tests to allow the company to dovetail the diet and fitness plan to your specific metabolic reality. So real personalized health, which is also real time. Every single day you step on the scale, the diet coach is able to figure out, okay, good. I, this person is losing weight, for instance, but he or she is losing a lot of muscle mass. So I need to recalibrate their diet. I need to recalibrate their, their workout regimen. Or this person actually has pretty high HbA1c. It is tithering at the edges of pre-diabetic. So when I design the diet plan, let me design it accordingly and so on and so forth. So it's very customized, very personalized health. And as we said, it starts from a free service and going all the way up to this very holistic service as well. So I see future of health basically being residing in primarily in one of those two buckets when one looks into the at least a near to medium term future. That's fascinating, Vijay. And I think so much about what you've touched on are compelling in terms of global markets and also in, in these markets that we're talking about, Africa and Asia. You talk about asset light, you talk about preventative healthcare, and that fits so well with the lack of a skilled healthcare workforce across Africa. It fits with the lack of a lot of physical infrastructure. So how do we work with what we have and leapfrog ahead to develop solutions that improve health in Africa and Asia? And could also be game-changing in other geographies around the world as well. So thank you for tying that together. And I can see how that interest has influenced your investment decisions so far. Can I just ask a quick question about exits? I'd be curious to hear your take as an investor on exits. Like what commentary, encouragements, or warnings can you provide about successfully exiting from healthcare investments in emerging markets? Number one, to state the obvious, it is critical that we as investors take our deals through that entire cycle all the way to an exit. Critical for two reasons. One, the amount of capital that currently is invested in private sector or healthcare in general in emerging markets is, is pretty low. If we want large sums of capital to flow into this space, as we, we will require, we cannot just depend on the governments even before the current crisis where a lot of governments are feeling huge amount of strain on their budgetary allocations. Even before that, it wasn't easy for emerging markets to allocate the required amount of capital to their, to their health budget, for instance. So that means it has to come from private sector. And if it has to come from private sector and private capital, there is a certain amount which can come domestically. Some countries, China, India might have more of it whereas others might have less of domestic private capital ready to be deployed in, in healthcare. So that means you have to tap into international asset managers who have hundreds of trillions of dollars that they're managing as we speak, right? So when that capital will only flow where they see real returns and not just unrealized uh, returns, but realized real good quality returns. So 
that is for me the single most important reason to drive exits. If we don't do that, we are not, I don't think, doing our job well enough. Secondly, exits could also mean force multiplication. Any of these companies which have figured out an innovative way to solve a problem, if the exit happens through an acquisition by a strategic, large, international, global giant, and if it all goes well, we do know some M&As, if, or if not, a lot of M&As don't go well, but one has to be optimistic in this line of business. So if you do assume that the M&A goes well, then there's an opportunity for that innovation, which has scaled successfully in one market to go to multiple markets, riding on the back of these, these strategics. And that's what we have tried to prioritize when we look at our own exits. Good Life, an example that I provided earlier our pharma retail investment in Kenya and Uganda. We partially exited that company to one of the largest medical distributors in sub-Saharan Africa, a company called Eurofarma, which in turn is owned by the CFAO group and, and which in turn is owned by Toyota. So a really large, a large and strategically relevant investor who has already bought in a lot of value additions and synergies to the company. And at some point, once we exit completely, we hope that that will be the force multiplier that I was talking about. There have been conversations, which at this point probably won't be able to share, between some exciting companies of ours and some large global players in the technology space, Who, in which case the, the force multiplication ef- effect is even greater, right? Because we are now talking in the realms of technology, software, et cetera, where as we know, the scalability is, is enormous across markets as long as a product is appropriately designed. So a lot of excitement there from my perspective. So, so therefore, answering question, exit, super important for the first reason alone and quite exciting for the second reason, the force multiplication. Nice. Great to see. And I'll have my eyes glued to the headlines for when you announce with the big technology giants. All right. So a few quick questions to wind up our show. And these could just be a sentence or two in each, depending on your preference. First question for you, Biju, is for innovators. You've looked at so many potentially game-changing innovations. What's a common mistake that you see in those that you have not invested in? What's an example of something that really worked, really dazzled you, and or maybe something that didn't? The one thing that I would caution innovators about is mistaking total addressable markets to a proportion of population, right? So, okay, I've come up with this product, which is very relevant to young people. And as you, I think, was pointing out earlier, 70% of Africa is young. So my TAM is 70% of a billion people. So 700 million is my TAM. And it sounds simplistic, but uh, it happens a lot. That's not the TAM. It's, there's a, multiple levels of filter. Maybe that's the first cut. Uh, And then how many of them can pay? How many of them are relevant in the markets that you can actually deploy it in? How many uh, can actually use it after you think of all the regulatory constraints that might come in? Can you actually, are you actually allowed to scale this across Africa? Because these are 54 very, 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 very different countries, so on and so forth. So then it could very quickly end up being, okay, well, there's just 10 people. For other investors, impacted ventures, or even philanthropic donors, what guidance do you have about investing in healthcare? If you were talking to a potential LP, 
What advice would you give them about doing it well, doing it correctly? If one is investing in relatively heavy infrastructure, healthcare, hospitals being one example, in markets where there is limited ability to pay, then best to give oneself a longer investment horizon, not not five years, more closer to 10 to 15 years, and then work backwards from there as to whether the IRRs make sense. Vijay, would you like to offer a shout out to someone who you would consider a thought leader in this space? Shout out to all the founders, uh, promoters, entrepreneurs who are, who are working out there, trying to crack a very difficult problem in markets where vast majority of the people are poor, barely getting by. How do you provide them with what should be human right, equitable healthcare? So every single person, irrespective of how successful they are, how late in their journey or early in their journey they are, I have only the deepest respect and feel that it's been the privilege of my life to have been able to invest in a few of them and to hopefully invest in more in the future. Wow. I'm going to push a little bit and say, come on, Biju, name one, name one founder that has really wowed you. I'll take the easy route out in that this person that I'm naming is not someone that I have invested in directly. So it's not from my portfolio. No mixed interests. Exactly. So Dr. Devi Shetty, who is the founder of Raina Health, someone whom I have um, known for a very long time and have had the privilege of having a few conversations with and to some extent being associated with their journey in, in very, very, very minor ways. What I love about and, and respect and am inspired by him and indeed the organization he has built is their almost the, the fastidious approach to culture and values. So in essence, the organization has been defined by the mission and not the other way around, not, not reactive to the ecosystem, not reactive to what's the flavor of the month, but rather with this single-minded focus, we need to provide equitable healthcare to, in their case, beginning with India, but pretty much any emerging economy or, or in, indeed any human being. And then figuring out how do we do that? What's the business model? What's the healthcare system approach that we need to have in place? Some of those things that he has been talking about over the years were ahead of their time at that point. But now, 15, 20 years down the line, it, it's possible with all the tools that we were we were talking about. So just standing on the sidelines and hearing him articulate these the vision many years ago, and then the organization in a very disciplined manner, sticking to that vision, irrespective of what's happening around them in many ways, yet being at the vanguard of innovation, whenever there is something innovative, whether it's a business model innovation or technology-driven innovation, being among the first to grasp it and use it in order to serve that purpose. It's a very purpose-driven organization. That for me is, is at the core of what we do. Even the exits and financial returns and scale, all of these come as a result of being focused on, on, on your purpose. And in healthcare, the purpose cannot be just financial, just cannot be. And his gold standard when it comes to living that particular philosophy. Wow, I'm glad I pushed for that answer. I need to find out more about this organization. That sounds phenomenal. 
Last question, BG. This one is just for fun. Do you want to recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time? Book, blog, or podcast other than yours, Rowena? <laughs> Movie, <laughs> radio show. <laughs> I'm going to talk about some of the biographies that I've read recently that, uh, that inspire me. It's Hamilton and the biography of Hamilton, really. I think his journey from a small island in what is today the Caribbeans to becoming not just one of the founding fathers of the US, but really one of the more influential founding fathers in that he had us. He left his imprint across multiple sectors of what is today the largest economy in the world. And indeed, in how some of those sectors were replicated in, in many other countries. It's an inspiration. And it is an inspiration also for people who are looking to, at the end of the day, make changes at, at a system level. And the a lesson seems to be really be a deep subject matter expert and exceptionally driven and hardworking. And that, that's as good a message to take from a book as any. And you've watched the musical, right? I have watched the musical. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I read the book yeah, first no, the before watching amazing. the musical. It was fantastic. <laughs> you were there before the rest of the world came along. Good to hear. Thank you so much, Biju, for your time today. I really appreciate your patience with us. And yeah, it was great to have you on the show. Not at all. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Rowena, and all the best. I hope you enjoyed this peek into the mind of one of the world's leading impact investors. If you have the chance, I really encourage you to have a look at some of the articles Biju has written. They're chock full of great content. Last year with LeapFrog, he helped develop the Emerging Health and Wealth Index, which decodes the priorities of the billions of emerging consumers in Africa and India. A few years earlier, in 2020, he published a piece with the IFC called Reflections on a Decade of Transformation, which points out some of the macro trends which are shaping the African healthcare sector today. For example, the growth of universal healthcare and health insurance coverage, as well as the consolidation of healthcare providers to drive better economies of scale. If you're interested in healthcare in Africa, you got to take a look. We'll link to both of these articles in our show notes at aidevolved.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please don't hesitate to send them to our mailbag at podcast at aidevolved.com, and we'll air it on a future episode. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show today, connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Join us again next time around when we speak with the former Minister of Health of Rwanda, Dr. Agnes Binagwaho, who played a key role in reconstructing the healthcare sector in Rwanda in the pivotal years following the Rwandan genocide. Until then, take care.